When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Today on the pod, we have a Democratic candidate for governor in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Tom Perriello. And later, we'll talk to the host of Crooked Media's With Friends Like These, Anna Marie Cox. Also, subscribe to DeRay McKesson's new pod, Pod Save the People. He had his first episode this week. It was outstanding. He had a great conversation with Cory Booker. Uh, he talked to Andy Slavitt about health care. It's exciting. It's a great podcast. It's wonderful. I do feel, I know we're all part of the same family, but I kind of feel like DeRay stole Cory Booker from us. <laughs> we'll talk to Cory Booker at some day, too. I thought it was a great interview with Cory Booker, too. He was like, he was pretty loose, you know, which is which is good. Um, yeah, that's a very good format for Cory Booker. Yeah, I thought so. So um, anyway, we'll be talking to DeRay more on, uh, we're going to talk to him on Monday's show, too, about what he's got in store for next week. So subscribe to Pod, uh, Pod Save the People. We will be in Seattle on Friday night, me and Dan and Lovett and Tommy all together with uh, Governor Jay Inslee. Uh, we'll be doing a live show there, and we'll be doing a live show on Saturday night, all of us in San Francisco with uh, Senator Kamala Harris. So, yeah, and you'll, we'll be putting some of those out as pods as well, so you'll be able to hear those if you're not going. And also, merch is on sale again. You can get yourself a Pod Save America t-shirt by going uh, to Cotton Bureau. So, all kinds of stuff happening. Can you get a repeal and go fuck yourself shirt, too? You know, I was going to ask Love at that, because he just sent me the the link that it's live and i feel like it might just be the pod save america shirt but it really feels like a time for the repealing go fuck yourself shirt like i might buy like five right now (laughs) that's right that's right um i think we should begin there i know on our outline we were um we had the uh 2016 comey clinton redux first but i feel like since uh house republicans have just voted probably by the time you hear this to uh deny millions and millions of Americans medical care that's more important than uh, relitigating the fucking 2016 election for the hundredth time <laughs> so maybe it's hard it's hard to know what's less enjoyable right yeah talking no about the passage of wealth care or relitigating the 2016 election yeah. both sound awesome it's, yeah no shit um okay so like I said by the time you hear this podcast because I think they're voting at 1 p.m eastern um House Republicans, uh, the, the House of Representatives will have voted on Trump care, Ryan care, wealth care. Um, and it looks like right now, unless something crazy happens, that they have the vil- the the, uh, the votes to pass this shitburger. Um, <laughs> as as Dan likes to say, this is shitburger was an old old phrase we like to use in the White House. Um, <laughs> since there were quite a few of them that we got there, so. We should go over what's in the what's in this version of the bill um, because it's very 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 bad. Uh, it is basically a trillion dollar tax cut for the rich, financed by near trillion dollar cut in healthcare funding for the middle class and the poor, uh, including special education services for children. That was a new one that I saw last night um, because 
This bill, of course, is cutting Medicaid by $880 billion, even though Donald Trump promised a million fucking times during the campaign that he would never cut Medicaid. So that's one that's one big promise broken for Donald Trump. Of course, what allowed the uh, House to pass this bill is the fact that um, they brought along the Freedom Caucus, which was opposed to the bill because it, of course, wasn't cruel enough earlier. And so they added an amendment that said... Um, states can choose to allow insurance companies to charge unlimited rates for people who have pre-existing conditions. Um, all they basically have to do is set up a, an insurance pool, which basically throws like a few dollars a day at people with pre-existing conditions. That's that's what it amounts to. Um, states can also eliminate essential benefits, hospitalization, ambulance rides, checkups, a cap on lifetime benefits, maternity care, prescriptions, substance abuse, mental health. Um one thing that the Wall Street Journal noticed this morning, um, employers, if you get your health care through your employer, uh, your employer can reinstate annual limits on the amount of care that they cover, that insurance companies cover. So that could affect not just people who buy insurance on the Obamacare market, but about 91 million Americans could be affected and could see uh, caps on the amount of health care that their insurance company provides every year because of this bill. Um, and of course... And of course, members of Congress are exempt from everything that they're about to pass right now. So, what do you think? But I guess they're going to—they're going to—they're going to take that provision out today, right? Well, what they're going to do is they're going to pass a—they have to pass a separate bill for it. Um, but that separate bill requires 60 votes in the Senate. It's not part of reconciliation, so they don't really think that's going to go anywhere. Well, let's let's kind of break this down for a bit. Yeah, it is true that the people who've really been living fat and happy in this country for too long. Are cancer patients. Cancer patients. Yeah. Cancer Access patients. to too much good health care at the expense of everyone else. So I'm glad that we've decided to fix that problem. Also, cancer patients are the new welfare queens. Also, by the way, in this bill, um, under what qualifies as a pre-existing condition, um, being pregnant, uh, sexual assault uh, qualifies as a pre-existing condition under this bill. So you could be charged more if you're a victim of sexual assault. I mean, it is just, it is so fucking gross. And, like, what is happening right now is also proving the point that Donald Trump is a symptom and not a cause of the sickness at the heart of Washington, D.C. right now. Um, Because what the House Republicans are doing is is such a combination of incompetence and um, maliciousness that, uh, you know, it just—I mean, because they are voting on this bill. There were no public hearings. There was no time for debate. Uh, the House Republicans' own rule said that they would have to post the text of any bill that they are voting on online for at least three days. It's been up for about 10 hours now. Um, most of them have not read the bill. Um, and, of course, they, are, they have refused to wait for um, a report from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, which would tell us both how much this bill costs and what impact it would have on people. Every single bill gets a CBO score. Every single bill. And this this bill, which will remake one-sixth of the American economy, um, they are going to vote on it with no score from the Congressional Budget Office. I mean, well, why wouldn't you? Like, why would you Why would you wait to know how much something costs before you buy it? Would you buy a house with, if you didn't get the inspection or know what co- how much what the price was? It's fucking insane. And they have, they have basically – there is something impressive about this. When you go through everything, everyone who's affected by this, you know, 
people, pregnant people, people who are victims of sexual assault, domestic violence, cancer patients, people who have health insurance from their employer, people who have health insurance in the individual market, people who have Medicaid. It takes a lot of effort to fuck everyone over. Right. <laughs> right? Like, they didn't miss anyone. They missed themselves. The only people exempted from the royal fucked overness of this are members of Congress. And then they're going to do a symbolic vote to suggest that's not the case. And here's I the- also feel, listening to you today, that every good podcast has like a yin and a yang. And usually the yin is, you're more hopeful. You wrote a lot of Yes We Can speeches. <laughs> and I'm more kind of the dark guy in this. I feel like today I really have to step my positivity to uh, <laughs> counterbalance a guy very upset about this and getting into Twitter fights with the dregs of the internet till late into the evening last night. <laughs> well, look, uh, I am not I am not cynical and hopeless right now. I am fucking angry, um, and I think that everyone who's angry should turn that anger into uh, as much activism as we can possibly muster right now. Uh, I'm not ready to give up by any means, but I am. Um, you know what it is, Dan? Is that I? I want to believe, and I and I thought I I I thought this was true, that there are some Republican representatives in Congress who, even though we completely disagree with them, even though they make bonehead moves, even though they fucking supported Donald Trump, that there is some semblance of a conscience in there. And that they would not act like total cowards and that those people would stand up for a bill like this and say, this is too much for me. I'm going to say no or even be smart enough to know that they're in vulnerable districts and that they might lose their seat. Right. And they can just say, you know, I'm going to stand up against this. Right. And I wouldn't even call them moderates. They'd still probably be conservatives, but at least they'd be principled conservatives. And it doesn't appear that that those Republicans exist in Washington anymore. Or it appears that I mean, right now I'm looking at a whip count where hard nos are about 15. So there's about fucking 15 of those Republicans in the House of Representatives. Um and it's just like, you know, I like to believe that there's possibility for bipartisanship. I like to believe that there's two parties who just disagree on things and we can come. But like, I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think that's true in Washington at all. Maybe it's hopefully it will be true in the Senate by the time we get there. But it's certainly not true in the House of Representatives. And every single Republican in the House of Representatives who votes yes on this bill should lose their fucking job in November of 2018. <laughs> it, I mean, it's depressing. There is no question about it that the system only works with two parties and we only have one functioning political party right it, the fact that martha mcsally stood up and like let's do this fucking thing to or whatever it was she said in caucus today as they played to, as they played eye of the tiger oh it's just like one can we update our fucking cultural <laughs> references it's 2017 that movie came out the year i was born it's just i mean also like the the array of groups that are opposed to this legislation The American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, the American Nurses Association, the American Cancer Society, the AARP, the March of Dimes. I mean, you can't get that many uh, interest groups to agree on anything in Washington. This is the point. This is to your point about Trump being the symptom, not the not the pre-existing condition that is that plagues (laughs) our political system. Is everything is about putting points on the board. They they would pass anything right now, so they can anything. say they pass something, and they are passing and anything because they don't they can't tell you what's in it. Half these people couldn't tell you what's in the bill. Certainly not the president of the United fucking states. Well, and you know what it is too is like I said this uh, on Twitter too. Like I want 
I would invite any Republican politician or maybe any Republican consultant to come on Pod Save America and try to defend the merits of this bill. No one, if, if they were making an argument, if they were saying, no, this is what we believe. We don't believe insurance companies should be regulated. We don't believe that the government should provide any assistance to pay for medical care for any American. We believe the free market should handle it, and that we should believe all the money that we spend to care for sick and poor and the elderly, we should put that, we should give that money back to the wealthy people who pay taxes. If they wanted to stand up and say that, I'd say, okay, well, at least, at least you have a, a principled stand. It's not a principle I agree with. I think it's gross, but at least you're being honest about it. None of them will be honest about it. They're all lying. And like, you know, all of our, like, you don't see any Republican consultants uh, talking about how awful this bill is. You didn't see any Republican politicians online talking about how great this bill is. No one will talk about the merits of this bill. No one has the courage to actually defend this piece of shit. None of them. Even if they had the courage, they don't know what's in it, so it's impossible right. to defend. Right. The the passing it without a CBO score is so unconscionable and irresponsible that it, it's like hard to fathom. The fact that we, for a long time in this country, particularly in Washington, had to treat Paul Ryan like he was some serious pol- deficit hawk, policy wonk, cared about government, he is a be- he is leading the charge on the most irresponsible legislating, possibly in history. This is one-sixth of the economy, it, and we're not going to even know what it costs. I mean, that's insane. We're not going to know how many people are affected by it, but pass it anyway so that you can make it in the winner's column of, of Chris Eliza's winners and losers column that will inevitably come after this vote. I mean, we what we do know is we know that we know people will go bankrupt because of this bill if it if it became law. We know that people will lose access to medical care and we know that people will die because of it. We know this. And yes. Republicans don't even want to find out how many will be affected like this before they vote. They refuse they they refuse to even calculate what their actions may cost the rest of the country. They refuse to even calculate before they vote. Because that the, the whole argument as to why they're not getting the CBO score, the truthful argument is what, the, the last version of this bill collapsed when they got the CBO score. So we definitely should not get the CBO score. That's one option. The other option would be write a better bill that gets a better CBO score. But instead, they're just like, well, why would we wait for the CBO score? Let's just pass it while we can so we can all go home. Donald Trump will send nice tweets about us. We, Breitbart won't savage us. Maybe Tucker Carlson will be nice. We can live in our little right-wing bubble yeah. and deal with the consequences later. I mean, it's the short-termism of the politics of this is so crazy, it's hard to fathom. Yeah. Well, no, you're right. I mean, they think they can be protected. Like, on Fox and Friends this morning, um, th- that group of fucking, uh, you know, bright light bulbs there said that uh, um, pre-existing conditions are a luxury. Uh, be- being protected for pre-existing conditions is a luxury for Americans. So they do know that they have an entire right-wing propaganda machine that will um, that will prop them up if they take this if they take this vote. But I think I mean the reason they're doing this, or like if you you know reporters have asked a lot of them uh, or had sources that said this, is they believe that um, if they pass this bill and they send it to the Senate, there's no way that the Senate will keep the worst parts of this bill, which, you know, is, I mean, we should talk about the Senate because that's what's going to happen next, but it is probably true that the Senate will strip out the worst parts of this bill. But, um, you know, passing passing a bill that you know will seriously harm the American people and, and really, and deny medical care to millions of people because you're hoping that the other chamber will fix it 
is uh, seems to be pretty pretty weak sauce to me. It is weak sauce, I think. The, <laughs> yeah, it. I mean, this is all about for the last hundred and five days or whatever we've been suffering through this eternity of the Trump presidency. Every day, the press, the right wing infrastructure, Trump are like, when are we going to pass? When is Paul Ryan going to pass repeal of ACA? When is Paul Ryan? No one is asking when is Mitch McConnell going to do it. Right. Paul Ryan would like to pass the shitburger, if you will, to McConnell and let people start asking McConnell what he will do without any regard for the consequences of his members who he's making vote on this or, I mean, not or the country. Right. It's just yeah. get this off my plate, get them so I can get to cutting more taxes for the wealthy. That's what this is about. Or if McConnell can't do anything with it and this thing gets stuck in the Senate, then Paul Ryan can say and the House Republicans can say, hey, we did our jobs. It's the Senate's fault. Don't look at us. Right. Like that's that's what they're looking for. So, like, let's talk about what could happen in the Senate. Basically, the reason and, and you know, some some Democrats, some people yesterday were saying, like, well, we should want them to pass this because, you know, uh, it'll be a politically suicidal vote for a lot of these House Republicans to take and then it'll die in the Senate. So we'll be fine. It'll be the best of all worlds. Um, I'm not there because I think this is just it's playing with fire and I wouldn't count on. I think anytime you're counting on Republican politicians to be smart or to be somewhat principled, um, you're in a bad spot. You know, you're, you should not be betting on that in any way, shape or form. So but what the Senate can do is they can take this bill. It will go over to the Senate. Mitch McConnell can decide that most of the provisions are fucking crazy. And he could basically rip up the entire bill and start from scratch. And the Senate. Can, so then the question is, what can you pass in the Senate with 51 votes um, to send back to the House? So they could come up with some bill that I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will not have the provisions for pre-existing conditions. Um, maybe it will cut Medicaid less than this current bill cuts Medicaid because a lot of Republican senators in the Senate have already said that they don't like the Medicaid cuts in the House bill, um, in the first version of the House bill. So let's say you know McConnell passes something that is not as awful as the House bill, but is still fairly awful. Then at that point. The Senate, it would go into, so they, they'd take it into conference, and then the Senate version would go back to the House, and the Senate will basically jam the House. And at that point, because the bill is not quite as cruel as this one, the House Freedom Caucus is likely to not approve of the bill that comes back to the House. But then the question becomes, does the House Freedom Caucus decide that they're the last people standing in between Obamacare repeal uh, happening? And... Then you have to count on basically the House Freedom Caucus, the hard right members of the House, to stop uh, Obamacare repeal from happening. And I just don't know that we can – I don't know we can expect that. We should not expect it. If McConnell sends a bill to the House, it will pass. I yeah, mean, I think I'm going to jump we back have... in the prediction game for a second, but there's no way that's, that 10, 12, 15 Freedom Caucus members are going to be the ones who stand in the way right. of this – of the Republican wet dream of the last decade. They just won't. It will be, this is why this is so dangerous is, you know, Democrats, it's nice. The Republicans took a really shitty vote that we can run ads on and protest them. But this is very dangerous for people who need a lot of help because now it's in the, Paul Ryan is an incompetent fuck stick. And <laughs> I know that may seem disrespectful to the office of the speaker, but so what? Um, Mitch McConnell is competent 
as fuck. He is evil, but he is competent. And he, this in his hands makes me nervous. The other guys on the left are just, on the on the house, are just a collection of numbskulls who can't organize themselves. But McConnell is good. He's very good at his job. And if he can send something back with 50 votes, that will become the law of the land. And so, and so for McConnell to pass this thing, he can only lose two Republican senators. And if he loses three, um, it doesn't pass the Senate. So now the question becomes, who, who do we pressure in the Senate to oppose whatever McConnell comes up with? Um, it seems like Susan Collins is one good bet because she actually is a moderate in the real sense of the word. Um, so it, it does seem like Susan Collins may resist voting for something that's bad. Um, but then, you know, it's hard to figure out who's next on the Republican side. And I think most of the pressure ends up focusing on Dean Heller from Nevada and Jeff Flake from Arizona, because those are two senators who are up in 2018 and they are in two uh, purple states, obviously Nevada more so than Arizona, but still they're, you could qualify them both as swing states and they could both lose their seats in 2018 um, if we run the right candidate and it's the right environment. And so it seems like putting pressure on those two is uh, is 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 the next step. Yes, I think that's right. And this is so people are asking, like, what should we do? Yeah. And the there is put pressure on those specific members you mentioned. In the, Repu- in the Republicans in the Senate, we should do that. But also, the resistance, whether it's in the form of phone calls, showing up at, rally- at town halls, protests, donating money to challengers, has to show that th- has to show that this vote has lit a fire under Democrats that she would make Republicans very nervous. They have to know that this was a has massive political consequences in a way that can maybe force them. If they believe the House is at risk over this, then there's a chance to get them to pump the brakes at some point. And so this is, we got a a recess or a district work period or whatever the term is coming up. Um, I know all of the, our various progressive organizations, Friends of the Pod, are doing a lot of work. And you and I both have been, promoting uh, Swing Left's effort to raise money for the challengers of yes. um, vulnerable Republicans who are going to support this bill. But all of that activity sends a message that is important. This is the moment of truth for the resistance right now. I mean, this is, it's like if, and and, and uh, Ben Wickler of Move On made this, made this point that you were just making this morning, which is, you're right, like, uh, eventually we're going to have to focus our efforts on the Senate and, and uh, members in the Senate, but we have to prove that um, the House members who voted for this will pay a political price. And it's like, I want to see all of the energy that went into organizing the Women's March, that organized the Climate March, the Science March, all the different marches, all the protests, everything that we've done up until this point, that has to be replicated on an even larger scale um, to let the House of Representatives know how we feel about this vote. That means protesting their home offices, protesting in D.C., swarming town halls, calling them. I mean, like 
all of the anger, all of the resistance, all of the opposition should be um, it, it it should be demonstrated in the next week. And uh, and I do think you mentioned the swing left thing, which is great. We I was talking to uh, Ethan at, at Swing Left um, uh, last night, and he was and we were talking about you know these district funds and how they're doing, and you know we thought maybe like some of the members, House members who were undecided. And who are also vulnerable, like we'd start raising money for the challengers or trying to raise money for the challengers early before the vote just to try to scare them off. So we thought that Isa, Daryl Isa, who's one of the more vulnerable uh, members, start there. And um, they basically they have quadrupled um, the amount of money raised uh, for Daryl Isa's eventual challenger uh, just since late last night. And I think that. Um, we could, you know, with a concerted effort, we could all probably do that for a lot of the most vulnerable Republicans who are up in 2018 over the next week, and just a, a show of force at how much money we could raise for their challengers to help them lose their seats. I think that's very important, and it's a way to channel the, I think, real immense anger and fear that people feel in this vote because everyone knows someone who's going to get screwed by this bill. Everyone and. To channel that into action is the only logical response to the the logic the for the insanity that's happening in Washington right now. Right, because clearly right now a lot of these Republican House members they thought all the all the energies they saw at their town halls, all the opposition, all the phone calls, they still believe that this represents a small minority of of their constituents, or that it's outside activists that aren't even their constituents. So. We we have to show them over the next couple of weeks that that's not true, that it's more than just and, and, and we have to make sure that it's not true, that it's not just a minority of people out there who are very noisy, but that it's enough people to cost them their jobs. Oh, man, they'd have to, then they'd have to go in the individual market and get this shitty health care that they just passed. <laughs> These fucking people, man. I don't know. Can, can I rant about something for a second? Please do. All right. So, per usual, I woke up. Did you? Did early you? West Coast. Do you want to talk about uh, Donald Trump marrying Joe and Mika? <laughs> no, I actually don't. I don't want to rant about that. But we can rant about that in a second. Good. No, I, 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 I wanna... just wanted to bring it up. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I, and if he's unavailable, Jared Kushner is also volunteered. Right. No, they have a backup, is... which is great. Or Jared could be the ring bearer. It'll be great. <laughs> That's right. If Jared is not in the Middle East, broken Middle East peace bringing Silicon Valley values to the federal government or um, uh, having a bilateral with the Chinese government, he will be able to do this. Perfect. Um, so I, re- I woke up early. I read the tip sheets this morning. Ooh, I didn't even read them this morning. I know. It was just, it was torture. It was torture. And the, not, there is nothing that infuriates you and I, our fellow Pod Save America co-hosts, and rational thinking people all across the world, more than when politics is covered as a game. Yes. And so, if if your response to millions of people losing their health care, including cancer patients, people who are the victims of sexual assault or domestic violence, if your response to that is to decide which politicians are the winners in this... Ugh. Quit your fucking job. I there just... are only losers here. 
There are only losers, and they're the American people. This is not a quote-unquote win for Paul Ryan. Does it mean that Donald Trump is a master negotiator? Does it mean that the new Reince Priebus, Gary Cohn wing of the White House, whatever, did anything right? It just means that there is a section of American people who needed help, got help, and, are, and now may have that help taken away. That's all that matters here. And when we, the fact that we cover this like the NBA playoffs is how we end up in a situation where the Republicans in the House think all that matters is putting points on the board by passing something, no matter how horrible it is or how ignorant they are of the details of it. Okay, okay. rant over. I feel better. No. Uh, once again, Trump is a symptom and and not the cause. And um, and and he, Donald Trump and official Washington deserve each other <laughs> in every way. And we should fucking clear that city out and start from scratch because it is gross in every way. And it is uh, it is uh, ruining the rest of the country. So that's where we are right now. Um, shall we shall we move on to uh, the 2016 Redux? I just want to I want to raise in the, on, on this pod for all of our listeners the same question I asked you over text earlier this morning. Yeah. Why did the House Democrats not adopt the Favreau Pot Save America strategy of holding I don't know. their votes on the omnibus hostage for this? I don't know. We could be sitting here right now and the House Democrats could be saying we are not voting on we are not voting on the spending bill to avoid a government shutdown unless we wait for a CBO score or you don't vote on this horrible, horrible health care bill and we are willing to shut the government down over this. They had leverage, and I don't. I'm not sure why they didn't use that leverage. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go off and rant about this because possibly yeah. there's a good explanation, um, and so I don't. You know, I don't want to jump the gun here. But it's it's very strange to me why they didn't use that leverage. Yeah, I am also not using an additional rant for this because Nancy Pelosi is a master legislative strategist. She is. I mean, we would not have passed the Affordable Care Act or a million other things without her. We wouldn't have stopped a bunch of terrible shit the Republicans did without her. So I I imagine there is a reason. I hope the reason is not the one that, you know, a bunch of the Democratic aides have said on background that Democrats really want Republicans to vote for this because it'll now they have a bad vote and we can run campaigns against them. Yeah. That is true that this vote makes the House more in play. But the risk of lose of twenty four million people losing health care is not a risk worth taking for to get one bad vote you might be able to run some ads on. So I just I'm just I hope someone someone out there with better knowledge of legislative process than us can explain to us via Twitter what happened here because it seems strange to me. Yeah, me too. Let us let us know, House Democrats. Um <laughs> We really actually don't have much time, thank God, for the 2016 <laughs> redux before we get to, before we call up uh, Tom Perriello. But um, do you have any thoughts on Hillary was interviewed by Christiane Amanpour. She said, of course, I take personal responsibility for my loss. I was the candidate. I was the person who was on the ballot. But of course, she also said, if the election had been on October 27th, I'd be your president. Um, of course, on October 28th, that was the day that James Comey released a letter saying he discovered he discovered more of her emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop. Emails that, of course, turned out to be duplicates that had no bearing whatsoever on the FBI's investigation. Trump tweeted about this later in the night. He said Comey was the best thing that ever happened to Hillary. He gave her a free pass for her many bad deeds. The Trump Russia story was phony. 
it was just an excuse used by Democrats for losing. Maybe I just ran a great campaign. And then Comey testifies before Congress and he says, it makes me mildly nauseous to think that we might have had some impact in the election. But honestly, I wouldn't have changed my decision because he thought he said, quote, concealment, in my view, would have been catastrophic. Um, I don't know. What do you make of all of this? Well, Comey's answer was terrible. It was terrible. I mean, it's it is not true that could he if he had just waited five days, he could have known what was in the emails and then not set the entire world on fire and shifted the election to Donald Trump. Right. First point. That's Second my thing. Point, is he didn't have to. He didn't have to conceal forever. He just had to basically wait to see what the emails were before letting the world know. It would have taken one fucking week. What what Comey did is basically the equivalent of a doctor telling you you probably have cancer before they do the biopsy to find out that you don't. Yes. Right? It's like... Yes, that is exactly right. And what it does not explain is why he felt such a compulsion to tell everyone about the emails, but not about the ongoing investigation into Trump associates colluding with Russia to shift the election in Donald Trump's favor. Also seems like a piece of relevant information voters might have been interested in. And the reason, which he can't say, is he thought Hillary was going to win... And it would be better to say this and therefore be in. He thought Hillary was going to win. The problem was going to take the House. We're going to keep the House and the Senate. And therefore, he was not going to be up Shit's Creek with his appropriators for the next four years of his life. And it was a tragic mistake that has very real consequences we're seeing today. My other takeaway from this whole annoying conversation is that the body politic, the press, the pundits, politicians are incapable of having a thoughtful, nuanced conversation about anything Hillary Clinton says. Yeah. She makes people insane. Yeah. And some of that, some of that may be through the fault of how, of some of her secretiveness over the years. And she, she should, will stipulate she should not have had a private email server. That was not smart. She did not handle having a private email server. Great. And she should have gone to Wisconsin. All true. But it's like people are incapable of holding two thoughts in their head at the same time. She can take responsibility for her mistakes that created the situation where they made the election so close that Comey could tip it and also say Comey tipped it and have those two things not be in conflict. But we can't do that. Well, yeah, I mean, we absolutely can't do it. And my thing is, like, when I complain about the media not taking any responsibility for their coverage in 2016, I do not say that to absolve Hillary Clinton of responsibility or fault or any mistake she made, because, like, forget about Hillary Clinton for a second. The way that the media covered 2016, um, that could happen again and probably will happen again in 2018 and 2020. And the mistakes they made, they will likely repeat, not just for Hillary Clinton, not just for Democrats, but probably Republicans, too. Like this idea of covering things as a game and sensationalizing things and overhyping things like the Comey letter, which they all did for an entire week. Like that will happen to other candidates of both parties going forward unless the media is reflective about how they acted. And many reporters are reflective about it, and they've told us privately that they're reflective about it. But there are certain reporters at certain institutions <laughs> who refuse to admit any problem with their coverage whatsoever. And that, to me, is a problem. And it does, has nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. It has nothing to do with defending Hillary Clinton. It has to do with how you cover politics. Um, and it, you know, and I, I worry that we'll hap- it will happen again in the future. The network news spent, I think, three times as much time on Hillary Clinton's emails as they did on every other policy issue combined. Like, that's not defensible. You cannot, even if you think it was very wrong, 
if even if you take the most extreme case of Hillary, of what is wrong about having a private email server, it is it cannot be that you think that should be covered three times as much as all the other policy issues combined. That's just not defensible. And why can't we all reflect? Again, no, yeah. Hillary Clinton has never said this was that she bears no responsibility. No person that I have talked to for who worked on the Clinton campaign privately, publicly on Twitter has ever done anything other than acknowledge they made multiple mistakes that contributed to the outcome of the election. That's it's such a straw man argument to say Hillary doesn't take responsibility. She blames us. That's not what's happening. And it's just so it's just such a it's such a stupid conversation that we should just all stop it. Right. I know. Like, and I disagree. We're not going to talk about it. Yeah. And look, like it's, it's like we we all fucked up. We all made mistakes. We like and we should all acknowledge that it's not that hard to do that. Right. Like Democrats should acknowledge it. Hillary should acknowledge it. Obama made mistakes. All of us made mistakes. Everyone did. But like the media is part of that, you know, like and it's not it didn't have to be that way. I remember when uh, you guys on on the pod interviewed Pete Williams um, a very smart, sober uh, reporter who covers the Department of Justice for NBC about the Comey letter, and he was like, "You know, it's very possible that this that this these new emails are nothing; that they're duplicative; um, that they're not going to tell us anything about the investigation. So we should pause. We should wait for." That was a very smart, serious thing to do. That was a much more responsible way to handle it than the way that the New York fucking Times handled it by plastering it all over the front page with six stories, um, and then you know, leading and then or. A lot of times the network news, which like led with it every single night. And look, if Hillary was a Republican, it still would be irresponsible for them to have done that. (laughs) It just is. It has nothing to do with like them being partisan or them being anti-Hillary or anti-Democrat or anything else. It has to do with them being irresponsible at how they cover political revelations, which a lot of times the political media is. And they need to learn that lesson. And maybe that's why they're trusted less than Congress and Donald Trump. (laughs) Maybe they could reflect on that. Uh, why, why bother? Why bother? Why bother? Why bother? Okay, when we come back, we will have um, the gubernatorial candidate um, for the uh, for the Commonwealth of Virginia, Tom Perriello. Tom, who I should disclose that I have been supporting and signed an endorsement letter for. So just we okay there. the disclosure. I may I may do it after this interview. We'll see how it goes. Okay, <laughs> when we come back, Tom Perriello. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. 
Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. On the pod today, uh, we are very fortunate to have Tom Perriello, who is uh, running for governor in the Commonwealth of Virginia and longtime friend of the Obama administration and a lot of us Obama folks. So, Tom, welcome uh, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. So we, we have you on in a day where, um, by the time people listen to this, it seems like the the House of Representatives will have passed Trump care. You took a very tough vote for Obamacare in 2010 and then lost your next race for Congress. Um, but you've said since then that you were... You were very um, proud of that vote, and it, and it was worth uh, the political consequences. What um, what are your feelings watching this go on today? Well, you know, I just wish I could sit down with all of the Republican members and say, you know, there's still time to do the right thing. Um, the reality is, you know, I have not regretted for a second supporting that bill, and uh, rarely does a week go by that I don't hear from a family either that was a constituent uh, or anywhere in the country talking about the fact that uh, in some way their lives were saved or their family was protected from bankruptcy by the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, those stories stick with you and impacts stick with you a lot more than having a couple extra years in the House of Representatives. So, as I said before, there are a lot worse jobs than being a former member of Congress, and uh, I really enjoyed <laughs> all the service I've gotten to do since then. So, you know, ultimately, I think the members can get stuck on the idea this is a political game instead of people's lives. And in this case, the consequences are very, very real. And I do think those uh, Republicans who step up and resist uh, this march towards ruining a lot of lives are going to look back and be proud that they did that. I was wondering... um... How does how do you think this issue would play out in the context of your governor's race? I know Virginia has had you know epic battles around Medicaid expansion over the years, and sort of how do you how do you think healthcare affects uh, your race either you know in the primary or for the general election were you to win the primary? Well, look, people have definitely been using the word karma uh, in this case, where it was a vote that was seen as very unpopular when I cast it, but is now seen as a, a positive vote, particularly in the Democratic primary here in Virginia, but all that. Um, and I think sometimes what's tough in politics is doing the right thing is something that pays off over, you know, a decade, uh, but our political news cycles are 24 hours and our election cycles are every two years in Virginia every year. Um, so here I think there's a deep appreciation among uh, Democrats across the state for, uh, first and foremost, for the Affordable Care Act itself. 
um, but also for the idea of sticking with President Obama when he was a little less popular. There were lots of Democrats lined up to stand there when he was at his peak. Um, but then there were others who stuck with him when uh, those numbers were a little lower because they knew it was the right thing to do. So, you know, there's a lot of goodwill for that um, and a lot of folks across uh, Virginia who I think at the time rightly uh, just weren't sure what the ACA was going to mean, and that was partly on us for not doing a great job of explaining it. Um, and now have seen what it means, which is that there are actually more opportunities for small businesses to buy in on exchanges and um, people to not feel like they have to be stuck in a job for the rest of their life just because that's where their health care is instead of pursuing uh, pursuing their dreams. So it's very positive. I think the Medicaid expansion issue is actually something, though, that's going to be a major, major problem for Republicans, not just Ed Gillespie, the likely uh, governor's nominee, but also for delegates around the state who've come out and voted against it, um, because it's something that just makes a lot of sense. Some of the reddest parts of Virginia, uh, where the legislators voted against it, they can literally look across the border into Kentucky and have relatives and friends who are getting the Medicaid expansion and are asking why the heck we don't have that here in Virginia. So, you know, I think these are going to be electoral issues, and I think they're going to be ones where the Republicans have tough answers to give. So, Tom, um, you first chose to run for Congress in 2007 against a six-term incumbent whose lowest margin of victory up until that point had been 19 points. Uh, You ran as a progressive in a deep red district of Virginia, and you came from 30 points behind to win by about 7,000 votes. I think it's all of our hope that a lot of people choose to make that choice and to run for office uh, in 2018, what kind of advice can you give them? Uh, how, how did you do that? How did you pull it off? Well, I hate to correct the pod ever, but I was actually 36% ah. behind and won by 700 <laughs> votes. Oh, 700. 7, votes. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, well, there you go. But, uh, you know, the first thing, and I think we've already seen this from the resistance across the country, is to never let other people tell us what's possible. You know, just a few months ago, people would have thought it was impossible to save the Affordable Care Act. We're still at least in the game on that, regardless of today's vote. Um, We've seen people show up at airports around the country to resist Donald Trump's terrible travel ban, and the courts start to do their job behind that. Uh, So I think, you know, the most important thing at moments of great change like this are to take a bold idea of what's possible. And I think we did that in running in the 5th District, not just the idea that the district was winnable, uh, but that the way to win it was actually to stand strong for progressive values, call out inequality, call out corruption in the system, uh, including those who had helped, uh, like these incumbents, to make it so. And you see that in our race today. You know, I came out and, and the first candidate to refuse any money from Dominion Power and the electric utilities and come out against these two gas pipelines, which some of the pundits want to pitch as sort of a left or progressive position, which is fine, but it's also extremely popular with a lot of people on the right who see the utilities as having too much control and choking out farmers and small business owners from being part of the new energy economy with distributed power. So I think that actually when we stand up strong for these and fight uh, for a fairer system, uh, there's a lot of appreciation across the political spectrum for that. So it is exciting to see people get into politics who've never done that before. Uh, I can assure you that I did not have that political experience, and I think some of the best uh, you know, advice I got at the beginning was to try to follow my instincts and not listen to necessarily what the political professionals thought. And generally speaking, where I did follow those convictions, those are the things I have no regrets about, and where we made compromises are the ones that you know I do look back on with some regrets. So 
Uh, I think it's an exciting time to have so many people coming into politics, whether as candidates or with new organizations, the Indivisibles and Huddles and everyone else. And it's just been awesome to see. Tom, you know, we spent a lot of time on this pod talking about the future of the Democratic Party and how to deal with the, you know, the still remaining rifts from the 2016 primary with the Bernie folks and Hillary folks. And yet, you're, you know, you are have been endorsed by both Bernie Sanders, John Podesta, the chair of Hillary's campaign, and a bunch of um, senior Obama administration officials, many of whom supported Hillary Clinton very vocally. How do you? How do you? How have you been able to navigate that divide? And where do you see the party going? Well, we're kind of trying to be the greatest hits album in a way. I think what we want to do is learn from the great leaders that have come before, but put that together for kind of a new generation of ideas and solutions because we have some new problems. So we try to draw on, you know, Secretary Clinton's unbelievable managerial uh, skills and policy depth. I think Warren and Sanders really get the extent to which people feel like the system is fundamentally corrupted and broken and leaving people behind. And also from President Obama, that idea to keep an eye on the aspirational, to not just resist and be defined negatively against what's going on, but to always try to call us to our highest values. And I think right now we want to not just resist Trump by stopping his agenda, but actually going to the root causes of what allowed someone like Donald Trump to rise. And I think there are two forces in particular we're taking head on in this campaign. One is this idea of genuine economic anxiety, and the other is the issue of resurgent racism, both overt and structural. And I think it's important to understand economically right now, because both of these were factors, that people's economic anxieties are not because they are too dumb to realize how great the economy has been for them. It's actually because I think they're 10 steps ahead of the policymakers in Washington and Richmond in understanding that the economy today is leaving a lot of folks behind. And it's actually about to get tougher because of the factors of automation and consolidation in the economy. And I think these are things the Democratic Party needs to start talking about. On the automation side, we could see 35 to 50 percent of jobs in the next 15 years disrupted, uh, which is a nice word for screwed, um, by automation. The Obama administration put out a couple of really important papers on this late in the administration. And the fact of the matter is workers are bringing this up to me. If you take coal jobs, for example, the biggest killer of coal jobs has been automation, followed by natural gas, not the things Donald Trump is claiming. Um, When we talk about consolidation in the Clinton years and the Clinton recovery, 70% of new businesses were actually created in small and medium-sized towns and counties. That was very different in this recent recovery, where we saw mom-and-pop stores replaced by Walmart and now Walmart replaced by Amazon. And when we see that, we shouldn't be surprised that people feel like their communities are being left behind. And we're going to have to rethink workforce development and pathways into the middle class. That's why we're the first campaign in Virginia history to offer two years of free community college, trade school, or apprenticeship programs, because we're going to see people getting on a revolving door of workforce training over their careers, not a one-time hit at the outset. Um, And the other is, I think, dealing honestly with issues of racism and racial injustice. Virginia is an incredibly progressive state compared to when I was growing up in many, many ways. But we still have a very repressive criminal code, essentially a new Jim Crow era state where the the level of felony larceny is $200 in value, which means stealing a cell phone constitutes a felony. 
and we severely undersupply indigent legal defense. So we have these problems that are on the books that we have to address, and I think we're looking for kind of a new generation, and the politics of these issues have changed, and I actually think they've changed in some ways that open up some real opportunities for, for progress. So it seems like Democrats do, or some Democrats, um, President Obama, you do a fairly good job diagnosing the problem, right? Like I, I can remember writing, I don't know how many passages and how many State of the Unions about globalization and automation. And then when you get to the solutions, it seems like we have a checklist of policies that sometimes we just sort of throw under the rubric of opportunity or fighting for the middle class or something like that. Is there? Have you been able to think about or articulate a vision, uh, a positive vision that sort of connects all of these policies that are a response to the realities of globalization and automation, economic inequality? Well, I've sometimes joked about our campaign trying to be a bridge between the Elizabeth Warren and Mark Warner wings of the party because <laughs> I think, you know, if we don't start out with, a pretty fired-up critique of the system. People aren't even ready to hear the policy solutions because mm-hmm. there's a sense that we just don't get how um, how worried people are about where this is headed. But then when you get to the policy solutions, I think there are people like uh, Senator Warner who've actually been thinking for 10 years about how we use more of getting back to trades, community college system, et cetera, how we look at relocalizing, and this sounds like a crazy idea, but actually relocalizing energy production and food production uh, as well as beverage production in ways that create and keep more value in the community. Um, between Teddy Roosevelt and Reagan, we basically had two concepts behind antitrust. One was keep it cheap, and the other was keep it small. And in the 80s, we got rid of keep it small, and we got exactly what you would expect, uh, which was you know an economy that kind of crucified us on a cross of plastic. It was very low consumer goods, but also a destruction of a lot of the resiliency in the economy from small business. So I actually think this is something we've kind of been around the edges on. To some extent, the Dodd-Frank bill started to talk about what it would mean to actually switch from too big to fail back to kind of smaller and localized economies. And to be clear, we're not talking about going all the way there. But if you just look at the beer industry, where we went from about 96% duopoly to about 85% duopoly in the last 10 or 15 years, it's only an 11% delta in that industry. But the impact has been enormous on rural communities and main streets and small towns in terms of jobs and small businesses and life in those communities. So I do think that some of this is going to have to be getting back to that. I'll give you an example from Richmond where there's a small welding business that has developed an apprenticeship program for former felons, um, training people. And the question is, the only limiting factor is whether there's enough demand for their services after the apprenticeship program. And if there was just a 10% plus up in contracting for locally produced product, then we could have an entire set. We could have literally hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the community who, instead of becoming repeat offenders and costing us 30000 a year, are actually moving into $35,000 a year jobs. Um, so there is no quick fix. Uh, there really isn't, and I think that's uh, one of the challenges in politics, but I think people appreciate when we're at least uh, connecting on what the problem is we face. Thomas, you look forward to your primary, which is in a a couple weeks here now, I guess. Um, You know, some of it, you have described this as 
uh, your opponent as sort of the establishment and you as outside the establishment. What are the core issues uh, of difference in your race? Is it, are there policy issues? Is it a difference of approach? Um, what should voters be thinking about in Virginia as they make a decision? Well, look, when I got in the race in January, no one was talking about a $15 an hour minimum wage or eight weeks of paid medical leave. No one had put out an aggressive platform on criminal justice reform or was talking about the issues of automation and consolidation in the economy. No one had put out a proposal for two years of debt-free community college or trade school. Um, I think it's important right now that the Democratic Party be a party of ideas and solutions. We've put them on the table. Uh, I think in addition, when I came out in January and said we're going to be a firewall against the hate and bigotry of the Trump administration, uh, my opponent actually hadn't had much to say about Trump between his election and his inauguration. And I think there was a difference of understanding about whether this was simply another transfer of power from D's to R's, or was this a more serious and existential threat to kind of our constitutional and progressive values. So we've run a positive campaign. We've tried to put out there an agenda that we think makes a difference. And I think part of why it's working so well is that it does two things at the same time. It gives our coalition a reason to show up when we stand strong on these issues. Um, but these are also uh, issues that can make a real difference in the lives of people who haven't necessarily come around to the Democratic Party. In Virginia last year, Trump didn't just lose. He lost dramatically in Virginia. Fifty-six percent of Virginians came out and voted against him. But a majority, unfortunately, also voted a slight majority against the Democratic candidate because there were seven percent of voters who went third party. In Virginia, mostly McMullen and Johnson voters. That means we have people who have been willing to take one step uh, away from the Republican Party, but we're not yet ready uh, to engage with the Democratic Party. We believe when we stand strong for living wage and paid medical leave and universal pre-K, and we pay for all of it with a tax reform proposal that asks, asks just a little bit more from people making $500,000 a year uh, and up, that this is something that actually switches the growth uh, myth that we've been stuck in, which is this trickle-down idea that tax cuts for the rich constitutes an investment, but giving people debt-free community colleges somehow a welfare or entitlement program. We now know that growth comes from the middle out, not from the top down. I think that's what we put forward in a bold way uh, in this campaign. I do believe that the next generation of clean energy jobs are part of the answer on the automation and consolidation problem that you talked about. We take on those monopolies. It's not just because of climate. It's because of what can create real jobs and value in communities across Virginia, including a lot that have been left behind. I think that's why we've done so well in this race and why we're going to continue to uh, to try to put, uh, make sure that Democrats are the party of the next generation of solutions. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, stop by Pod Save America, and uh, we wish you all the best in the primary in a few weeks. Well, thank you so much. Folks can go to TomForVirginia.com. We really appreciate what you guys are doing, and thanks for having me on the pod. Yeah, come back on when you're the nominee. <laughs> all right, we look forward to it. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Take care, Tom. All right. Thanks, Tom. Bye. Don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. 
Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. And Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Joining us is the host of Crooked Media's with friends like these, Anna Marie Cox. Anna, how's it going? Well, again, you always ask me that question I and I always have to have to think about it because... I, you know, today, I think even in Trump adjusted terms, I'm not great. Like, same. This is a, this is a bad day. We had a very, uh, we'll we had see. a very angry pod today. So, yeah, there was well, a lot of ranting. See. It was like basically we're the O'Reilly factor for liberals today. <laughs> <laughs> let's see if we can keep it up. Um, I'm, I'm pretty angry. Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, this week's, uh, with friends like these, it's actually a pretty, personal one you guys know it's coming it's a crossover pod with my friend john moe who does my hilarious world of depression um and we talk about depression um something that he and i both struggle with and i sort of we, we both tell our kind of personal stories about dealing with depression and in my case bipolar disorder and addiction and um you know, we sort of, before we taped it, we thought, well, we should probably have some policy discussion here. But we wound up, you know, those, our personal stories were pretty, took a long time to tell and we didn't get into policy. Now I really wish we'd gotten into policy because, like, fuck, man, you know, this, the repeal of the ACA is going to screw a lot of people. Let's not, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of people that were suffer, but, you know, I just have a real personal relationship to it. And yeah. I'm angry. 
Um, Do you, you think know, people with depression would be people with mental health disorders, including depression and bipolar, would be considered pre-existing conditions? Drug addiction would be considered a pre-existing condition. Um, if you had a serious mental health history, which I actually have, like I could be banned for life um, from having health insurance. Um, it's 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 monstrous. It's it's you know, pardon my language, but it's insane. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, D- Dan was saying earlier how um, when he read the morning tip sheets and it was like someone was like, oh, who's going to win from this? Who are the winners from this debate and losers? I feel like a day like today is when we are really hurt by having a system um, where politics is covered as, you know, winners and losers and the human toll of what's going to happen if this thing passes has been uh it feels like it's been an afterthought in a lot of the conversation. Yeah. And even, you know, the Jimmy Kimmel story, which was so affecting and personal, got turned into a political football for some reason. Of course. You know, I mean, that fucking asshole Charlie Hurt Ugh. wrote a whole piece taking down. He had the hottest take ever, right? Like the fires of hell hot. <laughs> where, <laughs> where he will burn um, for, for taking Jimmy Kimmel's like plea that infants be covered by healthcare <laughs> as a sign of elitism. You know, I mean, you can't win. And, and I think this is true. I mean, you do see it online. There are people organizing around this. There are people telling their stories. Um, they should. Um, people need to know that this is something that's very real. Like, you know, I had I just, I'll tell just, this is what happened to me, which is that, you know, I bottomed out. I spent time in a psych ward. I had to go to long-term treatment. I got didn't have a job after that. Uh, I had to go. I thanks God I was lucky enough to move to Minnesota, where there was an existing high risk pool that I, I was able to get health insurance. Oh. You know, and even then, my healthcare, my my depression meds weren't covered for three months because that's the way they sometimes manage the high risk pools to keep costs down. They don't cover the thing that you're a risk for. People don't understand this. The thing that put you in the high risk pool, they won't cover that for a certain amount of time. Right. I was going to say, well, I think a lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't know how these high risk pools work, except for they don't seem to work very well. And it seems like <laughs> and it yes. seems like the Republicans have not allocated nearly uh, enough money uh, for them to work well. But what what was your experience with a high risk pool? I didn't I didn't know that you were in one. Well, the Minnesota had one. Minshore, um because Minnesota's, you know, I mean, I, I it's an awesome state. Basically, yeah. <laughs> it's a very progressive welfare state. Um, and I was able to get health insurance, even though I had, I'd been hospitalized for mental illness and I'd had a long-term, you know, uh, inpatient, uh, addiction treatment. But the thing that I was, you know, that the thing that made me part of the high risk pool, which was that mental health issue, they didn't cover for three months. I had to pay for my own meds. They do that as a disincentive to lapse coverage. Like that's how all of this kind of works, right? Like Mm -hmm. even in this bill, it's not that they, they, are, you can't get coverage if you have pre-existing conditions. What they do is they just make it really fucking expensive, right? Right. Like prohibitively expensive. And they create all these disincentives to lapse coverage. But I'll tell you something. If you're someone with mental health issues or an addiction issue, your your coverage will lapse. <laughs> like, right. you, are, you are living a life where you're probably going to have some lapsed coverage. You know, because like self-care it's, is like not your number one priority sometimes. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, people forget that the entire reason that we had to pass the Affordable Care Act to f- deal with pre-existing conditions was high-risk pools didn't work. Like, that was yeah. the argument. We tried it. It didn't work. So we did something else that did work. And now we're just returning yeah. to the thing that didn't work. And yeah, there's still huge problems. Like, let's you you guys probably know better than anyone. There's still huge problems with the way the American healthcare system works. There's right. particular problems with how it deals with drug addiction and with mental health issues. But like in the community that I live in, that you know, the recovery community here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, I know plenty of people who never had healthcare before this. Like, I'm getting chills thinking about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, it just it, and I mean, it goes to show too because you're right. Like, Obamacare was by no means perfect. There was there's plenty that we should be doing to fix it and to improve it. And it just it makes you even angrier to imagine what if we had a scenario where, you know, we had Democrats saying, well, here are fixes to the ACA. And Republicans are saying, well, we have some fixes, too, that are more market oriented than yours. And, you know, let's get together and figure out how to make this better. And I mean, it's just it's like it sounds silly me even saying that (laughs) because we are so unbelievably far from that, you know, that they can't they can't even describe what they're doing as a fix Right, and you know why that is? It's because they reverse engineered their legislation from a slogan. Right, that's right. They they came up with a slogan in an attitude, which is repeal Obamacare, and then they had to come up with something. Because, <laughs> you know, like, I think Matt Iglesias says this all the time. We should just, you know, and, and other people too, you guys too, this is not about healthcare reform. This is about a, a tax cut for the rich. And this is about people who don't want, you know, poor people to have health care. Like, that's, they don't give a fuck. Right. Like, that's one of the things I worry about when we, t- we tell all these sob stories about people, you know, being denied coverage or people um, having to, to live without certain kinds of, you know, care, is there's a certain percentage of the Republican Party that's just like, well, fuck them. You know? Yeah. Like, well, that's, that's, that's not that's, my concern. No, and that's certainly um, how these representatives feel or these Republican politicians feel in the House. Um, what do you think moves people out in the country, Republicans. I mean, do you think, you know, you you talk to a lot of Republicans, you talk to people from all different sides of the spectrum. Um, you know, is there a sense that we should be fixing ACA, we should be improving it, or um, is anyone with the House Republicans that you've talked to um, and, and, and thinks this is a good idea, what they're trying to do? Yeah, well, I do know some people that are, I mean, I, I think we've talked about this before. I, I talk about it a lot on my podcast, which is that, um, we've entered into an age when people adopt the tribe first and then the beliefs that come with that tribe. Mm. And so I think there are people that are kind of unthinkingly behind this, behind the House Republicans, behind whatever it is that Trump wants, because they're sort of identify as Republicans first and then kind of the policy comes later. Yeah. But I think that most people who think this through, even people who are conservative, um, you know, realize we cannot go back to the way it was. And also that Obamacare is market oriented. Right. I mean, well, that's why they've like had that's, that's why they've had such a problem replacing it is because they called it a government takeover. It really is one of the more market oriented health reforms we've had, and so therefore there's no other place for them to go with right. re, with replace. You know. Right. Exactly. Like that's my problem with Obamacare is it's too market oriented. Right. Like I'm yeah. single payer person myself. You know. Um, but and this is just this was like this was kind of you know, jury rigged and backward, you know, engineered from having to have it be market oriented. I mean, we're the only, you know, we're the only, let's see, like first world uh, nation, um, you know, first world economically developed nation that does healthcare the way that we do. As far as I think there's one other 
country that does job-based healthcare. Like yeah. most other countries, like don't like this is crazy the way that we do these things. <laughs> so it's already kind of fucked up. But and you can see, but it is market oriented, and you can see that in the people that have come out against the A, a-, a- CHA or A. Am I saying that? Is A A Wealthcare. We just call it wealthcare around here. Um, wealth care, I heard someone call it <laughs> once. Um, uh, you know, like the American Medical Association, which is anti-single payer, like all these insurance con- companies, which are, of course, anti-single payer, like they're for Obamacare because Obamacare is something that takes care of doctors and health insurance companies pretty well. Um, and they're, they're definitely against this repeal. Like, I- I'm just baffled. I mean, you guys probably already talked about this, but I just for my own information, I got to know. Like, what do you guys think is going to happen if they pass this and then the CBO score comes out and it's, you know, a uh, fucking like poison pill. I think that they're all their hopes are pinned on the Senate um, sort of undoing the worst things that they've done, which is a fucking crazy um, way to go. But um, <laughs> we just saw that you know, Bob Corker said there's no way this passes the Senate. So I think that the Senate tries to pass a Senate Republicans try to pass a less awful version of this that is still pretty awful. And the question is, you know, can they get Susan Collins and and two others on board um, with that less awful version um, so they can send it back to the House and then have the House swallow it? The interesting question here, I think I would usually bet at McConnell finding a way to make the country worse. So, like, I'm not super (laughs) hopeful. But there are enough Republicans who said they would not vote to defund Planned Parenthood as part of this bill in the Senate to make it not be able to pass. Right. And so could they pass a version without that and send it to the House? And then how does Paul Ryan and the Freedom Caucus, everyone, respond to a bill that that doesn't defund Planned Parenthood? Right. I think they still pass it. And then Paul Ryan makes some pledge to force Democrats to shut the government down over defunding Planned Parenthood at some point. But... Like they're going to rewrite it. They're going to reverse engineer it to 50 Senate votes and send it back to the House and dare the House not to pass it. And I think it's going to be pretty hard for them not to do it. Pretty hard for them to not pass it. So you think some version of it's going to pass? I think that there is a greater than 50 percent likelihood that we're headed in a very bad place. This is so fucked because you guys know the other like that. This the Times reported this last night that this bill also um, uh, eliminates school reimbursements from Medicaid. Oh yeah, special education services. Yeah, (laughs) I mean like you if you were trying to come up with ways to seem cruel. Yeah, it's impossible. I mean, this bill does it. I mean, I can't believe that that anyone thinks this is. I mean. I mean, do we need to show Trump pictures of children again? Like, I mean, he he bombed Syria over it. Like, do you think he'll, like, bomb the Republican House caucus? I mean, look, I think that since there haven't been a ton of uh, signs of hope right now, I think, you know, the way we have to end this is, yes, we could be headed to a very bad place, but the only only tool we have left is overwhelming protest and activism uh, in the next couple weeks. And we were saying this earlier, I just, I, I think that, all the energy that went into the Women's March, the Climate's March, the Science March, everything else the resistance has done over the last couple of months, it has to come. This is this is the moment that we have to uh, we have to step up in these next couple of weeks um, yeah. to stop this thing, because I think that's I, the only hope. I agree. Like, get your jerseys on, team. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is this is it. And it's do or die in the unfortunate, like most Quite literal literally. way possible. Like, you know, someone yeah. who will suffer from this. People, yep. everyone yep. knows someone that will suffer. So, and um, th- do it for them. 
Yeah, this terrible bill and this deeply insane, irresponsible process that they ran is either the beginning of the end of the Republican Party as we know it, or the country as we know it, and that's probably up to us to decide which path we take there. That's right. On that note, oh, we we found some hope. <laughs> on that note, we will. Uh, every, so you have uh, you've recorded the crossover already with John, and then it's going to air I tomorrow. Did. Okay, it's going to air tomorrow. So on um, Friday, it's, it's an intense trigger warning, everybody. Um, but I think it's pretty good. So, so I will. Uh, I will very much be looking forward to it, and you are uh, you are brave for doing it. So thank you. Okay, I'll talk to both of you guys later. That's all the time we have on Positive America today. Thanks again to Tom Periello for joining. Thank you, Anna, for calling in. And we will see you guys this weekend and talk to you on Monday. Bye, guys. Take care. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Mm -hmm. More time for you. I. uh... You know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So, uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to another time because uh, it turns out talking that's about... going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and Suited to your schedule, just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA.